Welcome, everybody, to Dad Talk Live. I'm your host, Viz, and I want to welcome everybody to our show tonight. Hope you could spend the next hour with us as we discuss all things horror. If you're new to the broadcast and want more information, please visit us on the web at deadtalklive.com. This show is simultaneously streamed to five different social networks, including YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter, Monday through Friday. I hope everyone's doing well. I want to say a big thank you and a welcome to all of our moderators across all those platforms. Welcome Khaleesi. Colette has joined us. We have Marco joining us tonight, our executive producer. On the Instagram side, we have Carol Ass. I love that name. How you doing, Carol? We have Mary61Mom, who is in Tijuana. That's cool, Mary. Ware is also joining us. Sandra is also joining us on Instagram. So I'm feeling much better today. As you might have noticed yesterday, I was very low energy. I was exhausted. I went to bed at 2 a.m., which for me is an extremely early bedtime. And I didn't get up till 1 p.m. I got good, solid 11 hours of sleep. So I'm feeling much more energetic tonight. Colette is joining us from England. Philip has just joined us on Facebook. Welcome, guys. Happy Friday to everyone. Happy Saturday morning to a lot of you on the other side of the planet. Hope everyone is doing well. Uh, Just a little reminder, next week on Tuesday, we are going to be joined by the legendary Xander Berkeley. Uh, A lot of us know him as Greg from The Walking Dead. Uh, He has done a ton of movies. Apollo 13, Air Force One. More recently, he was in the, uh, the the Dark and the Wicked, and on and on and on. So we are very excited to have him joining us. That is this Tuesday, May 4th at 9.30 p.m. And on Monday, we're going to be doing something a little bit differently. Uh, we're actually going to get a chance to review the latest Fear of the Walking Dead episode on a Monday. Uh, we're gonna. Be, I'm gonna be joined by our executive producer Marco, who is also my brother. So he's gonna be joining me on the screen, and we're both gonna go over the latest uh, Fear of the Walking Dead episode, which is dropping this Sunday. And if you have AMC Plus, it's available for you right now. Uh, let's see. We got Megan, who's just joined us on Facebook. Welcome, Megan. Viviana's just joined us as well. Hope everyone is doing well. So we have a week's worth of news to uh, sort of catch up on tonight. We haven't done any of the headlines in a week. And, uh, well, there's a lot of stuff that a lot of stuff that is piled up. So let's just see what we can get through in the next hour or so. Now, this is interesting. This, I just, I just read the headline and it sounds really bizarre. I don't know what it's about. But the headline goes, Friday's deadline explores the Southern Oregon case of a horror movie actress accused of killing her uncle in real life. So that's just bizarre. A true crime case that happened in Southern Oregon involving an independent horror movie and an actress in the film who later turned out to have been charged with killing her uncle has already been the subject of NBC's Killer Role podcast. Now the story is coming to NBC's Dateline for an episode that will air tonight, April 30th. 
Um, as does the podcast, the Dateline episode features correspondent Keith Morrison and focuses on the story of an Oregon woman who, going by the name of Wynne Reed, auditioned and won a role in a low-budget horror movie called From the Dark, playing a killer. Once filming was complete, however, it emerged that Wynne Reed's name was actually Asling Tucker Moore Reed, and that she's been charged with killing her uncle. There's more to the story. Um, as the uh, Mail Tribune reported, the Grants Pass-based filmmakers behind the movie, From the Dark, didn't know that Reed was facing charges while they were filming. The Dateline episode was originally scheduled to air last year, but was postponed according to publicity material. Because of the breaking news, Killer Roll includes interviews with Reed's father, Daniel Reed, detectives Gabe Birchvale, and Tony Young, from the dark screenwriters Matthew and Tiffany Spickard, and more. So if you're interested in finding out more about it, uh, depending on where you are in the world, you can check out the latest Dateline and get some more uh, behind-the-scoop information about that. I just read that headline, and I'm like, that's just really, really bizarre. So I had to run it by you guys. Now, The Walking Dead showrunner uh, Angela Kang says that season 11 will be back to the usual scope and scale. What exactly does that mean? Chaos. Okay. That may be the best word to describe what happened on season 10 of The Walking Dead. And we're just talking about the drama surrounding the actual airing of the episodes. Even though filming on season 10 was completed a few months before everything shut down due to COVID, the final episode airing was delayed for six months due to a very complicated post-production special effects that could not be done during the lockdown. And then the final episode was not even the final episode. Due to the fact that season 11 was unable to start airing in October 2020, AMC instead filmed six season 10 bonus episodes that aired at the beginning of 2021 to tide fans over. However, those episodes looked and felt much different due to the strict COVID safety protocols in place at that time that led to a much smaller scale installments. And for us viewers, I don't think we really noticed that. And they did a great job uh, making it so we don't really notice that much of a difference as viewers. The good news for fans is that season 11 will feel like a throwback. Now with much more experience of filming in a pandemic, showrunner Angela Kang promises that The Walking Dead will be going big in its final season. Uh, just in very broad terms, I'll say that season 11, we get to come back to more of our usual scope and scale that people are used to. So we'll start seeing more stories again, like the first episode. It's got, it's got everybody on Earth in the episode and tons of zombies and lots of action and fun and, fun and intrigue. 
um, and locations we've never seen and things like that. So just stylistically, there will be a change from these six episodes that we just watched back into our normal season. As far as what we can expect to see in terms of the characters themselves, Kang starts off with the obvious we'll be dealing with the new group that our focus, that our foursome of Eugene, Ezekiel, Princess, and Yumiko ran across and the starts and starts to open up their world in bigger and unexpected ways. Then of course we've got to we got to see uh, Connie is still alive at the end of episode 16. So we still got that thread out there to deal with. We've got some great stories at Alexandria as they're dealing with the aftermath of this Whisperer War and things start to amp up even further. And then it all keeps rolling from there. But it sounds like one of the show's original gang is in for something new in season 11, which may or may not involve the mysterious Leia, a storyline from the bonus episode that both Norman Reedus and Kang have teased is not completely closed. So it'd be great to see Leia back and just find out exactly what the hell happened to her, where would she go, and leave the dog behind. We've got some really intriguing stuff for Daryl, says Kang. We'll be putting him in a very in the very context that he's been in before. And we've discussed this before as well. If Leia returns and then Connie's back in the mix, Daryl is going to go from having no relationship uh, whatsoever, uh, romantic relationship, in the last 10 years to possibly being caught up in a love triangle. Now, wouldn't that be a great twist? As for how season ended with Negan returning to Alexandria and flashing that sly smile at Maggie, what can we expect for those two when season 11 returns? There is a big important story that has to do with Maggie and Negan, promises Kang, and I think it should be fascinating. Those two are really, really great across from one another. So what does that smile mean anyway? In the grand tradition of Negan, you never know exactly what's going on, uh, especially to his thinking, Kang says. And those two, there's no love lost between them. I think that's where Negan is at. And in some ways, when Carol walks him out there to Hansel and Gretel him into the woods, she's just like that. Here you are. You're on your own now, and I really think that Negan was uh, kind of going to accept that. He was like, okay, I guess this is my fate. It's never going to work out, and by going on this emotional journey of remembering his wife and just who he was and who he had hoped to be at one point, I mean, this guy was never an angel, but at the same time, he didn't start off as pure evil or anything. He just had to go his own way. Kang said that the memory of Lucille changed something in the former savior. He got to the point where he remembered that she wanted him to fight, and she understood the importance of being with other people. That's one of the things that she says to him. We can't make it on our own. It's never going to happen. And Negan He's really thinking about the legacy of his wife 
and what she had hoped for the two of them when she hoped for him and has decided, you know what, I've earned my place here and I'm going to prove that I have a place here. And if that means I've got to face Maggie, even though that's something that is uncomfortable for me to face, I don't want to and it scares me in some ways, but that is what I have to do. And now we'll see him do it in season 11 in the scope and scale befitting of the final season of the biggest drama in cable television history. So that's a big tease right there. I mean, that's that's enough to get me excited. Uh, Colette writes, hopefully she's got a baby Daryl. Wouldn't that be something? Leia went away and uh, because she was pregnant and she comes back with Daryl's child. Holy cow. Uh, the fans are going to flip. Some are going to flip in a bad way, but I think the majority are going to really be excited about that. Khaleesi writes, I cannot wait. Neither can I. And we don't have to wait that long. Season 11 of The Walking Dead is premiering at the end of August, which will be here before you guys even know it. want to welcome Daniel Legend, who's just joined us on Instagram and is saying hello. Welcome, Daniel. So let's see what else we got. All right. Netflix's new horror movie is dividing the Internet. Netflix just released a new horror movie, Things Heard and Seen, and the haunting tale is dividing the internet. The film stars Amanda Seyfried, who plays Mank, and James Norton and uh, from Little Women 2019 as a married couple who leave Manhattan for a remote home in the tiny hamlet of Chosen, New York, where Norton's character lands a job teaching art history at a small Hudson Valley college. However, as in the case with pretty much all the horror films, a change of scenery is not always for the best. Seyfried's character, Catherine Clare, does her best to transform the old dairy farm into a place where young daughter Franny will be happy, but she finds herself increasingly isolated and alone. Soon, Catherine senses a sinister darkness lurking in the old house and her marriage to George. Things Heard and Seen was directed and written by Shari Springer, Berman, and Robert Pulcini from American Splendor and is based on Elizabeth Brungay's novel All Things Cease to Appear. Netflix watchers who have already streamed the new flick are taking to social media to share their thoughts on it, and it is clear that there are some mixed reviews so far. Uh, some people are saying this, I really liked uh, things heard and seen. It was interesting. It gets crazy. The story kept me surprised. The ending was sort of a letdown, though. The casting was great. Uh, another person says, currently watching things heard and seen on Netflix. And is it weird that it's the most unrealistic moment in this haunted house movie so far? Is a woman going for a horse ride minutes after having sex? I don't think so. I mean, unrealistic is a pretty strong term for that. <laughs> the talking flesh tadpole from the sink was more believable. Okay. 
It's called Things Heard and Seen. It's recently been put up by Netflix. Very interesting to say the least. They mention a lot. And uh, and Sweden, sorry, Swedenborg so much that I might read up on him. Things Heard and Seen on Netflix was pretty good. It was as if Netflix kidnapped Ari Aster to write a ripoff of one of his own movies. Another watcher offered, referring to the filmmaker behind Hereditary and Midsommar. And I'll tell you what, I think I'm going to watch it. Why not? Sounds interesting enough to me. Things heard and seen. So if you're looking for something to watch on Netflix this weekend, check it out. Who knows? Let's see. Now, The Conjuring, this was kind of, they. I read the headline, as you know, I do not read these articles. I just read the headlines to pick them out. But The Conjuring Universe has a link to a classic horror film. And they're talking about the Amityville horror. The the Conjuring films are connected to the 1979 film, The Amityville Horror, as that case was also famously investigated by Ed and Lorraine Warren. Uh, And speaking about the Amityville horror... uh, on the travel channel i know it's definitely available on discovery plus a streaming service yeah discovery does have a, a brand new streaming service as everybody does now uh they have these shock docs and there's one really interesting one with a lot of cool information uh, about the real story behind the amityville house anyway Ed and Lorraine Warren founded the New England Society for Psychic Research and were real-life paranormal investigators, and their years of investigations have become the basis of the connected universe of the Conjuring film series. There are technically eight films set in the universe, but there is another film also inspired by the case of the real Warren couple that isn't included and shared in the same universe. And that's the 1979 Amityville Horror. Now, to correct them, in the one of the Conjuring movies, I think it was The Conjuring 2, uh, it starts off with their investigation of the Amityville house. So, I don't know if the person who wrote this completely missed the first 10 minutes of that movie, but the whole film, not the whole film, but that the opening sequence is about the Warrens. Sorry, in- I'm having trouble. Shut up, Siri. It's about the Warrens investigating uh, the Amityville house. So I don't know what they're talking about here. The Amityville horror did not feature the Warrens in the adaptation of the film because the Warrens did not visit during the Lutz family short stay at the allegedly haunted house. Them and every other paranormal investigator at the time did, though. It was not just the Warrens. They visited the house in March 1976, but the Lutz family fled the house a few months earlier in mid-January 1976, only living there for exactly 28 days when they fled in the middle of the night. And one of the interesting pieces in that shock doc that I did not know about We all know the story that the Lutz family picked up and left in the middle of the night, leaving all their belongings. 
What I didn't know, and I found out in that documentary, was that when they bought the house, the realtor did tell them this is where the DeFeo murders occurred. Not right away, but before they closed on the house, and they still bought it anyways. That's fine. But the DeFeo family, they were murdered by Ronnie DeFeo, the oldest son, uh, and then the house was, you know, sold had all the original furniture from the DeFeo family. That furniture was not the Lutz's furniture. So when they picked up and fled and everybody said they left all their belongings and furniture, well, it wasn't really their furniture to begin with. It was the DeFeo family's furniture. And why in God's name, let's put aside the fact that you're buying a house where a horrendous murder spree happened. Okay, fine. You're not superstitious. I can totally buy that. That's cool. But why would you keep the furniture? They even kept the bed frames. They are, they, the police got rid of the mattresses, obviously. There were evidence uh, where the family was shot. They were all shot in their bed. Uh, but they kept the bed frames. Uh, the Lutz family kept the bed frames of where every family member died. Now, I don't know about you, but, oh, hell no. Hell no. That's where I draw the line. The main plot of that film is about the alleged haunting of the Lutz family and was based on the book by author Jay Anson. And that's, of course, what got the Lutz family really into trouble. Everybody was skeptical. They did monetize their experience as they had a right to, uh, you know. The only thing I know for a fact uh, is that there have been no reported paranormal activity. There has been no paranormal activity reported in that house ever since the Lutz family moved out in 1976. Now, could, they, could the owners be keeping it a secret? Sure. But, you know, I'll leave that up to everybody's opinion because everyone is going to have their own opinion. Colette writes, I would have set fire to it. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so, Shutters, Dead House Dark is a scattershot horror anthology with one supreme gross out. The loose technophobic theme doesn't hold together, but some of the entries are standouts. Horror might be the uh, genre best suited to the short film format. Tension and suspense are both good and worthwhile, and they benefit from the slow-burn, long-form approach of horror directors like Guillermo del Toro, Ben Wheatley, or Jennifer Kent. But straight terror? Terror is an instantaneous reaction that allows for compressed storytelling and anthology films like Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark and the Mortuary Collection leverage this quality to their benefit. Each of those anthologies offer up scares in the increments of 20 minutes or so. From the former's exploding spider bite to the latter's elaborate babysitting frame story, the buildups are quick and the payoffs are satisfyingly unsettling. The latest offering in this subgenre, Shutter's Anthology Horror Collection, 
Deadhouse Dark relies on that same approach for its six stories loosely linked by a general fear of dark web. But that's a great movie, by the way. But aside from a couple of exceptionally shocking moments, Deadhouse Dark is a shaky collection that doesn't take advantage of the unique interconnectedness an anthology format can offer. Most movies about social media take a broad, relying on technology is risky angle, either literally, like Henry Jost and Ariel Schulman's Nerve, or figuratively, like Gia Coppola's upcoming Mainstream. Deadhouse Dark falls somewhere in the middle, with horrors both tangible and disembodied. For the most part, the film's six stories share a predictable commonality, the suggestion that our desire for attention, as filtered through social media, is our greatest weakness. And I agree with that. Explicit sources of danger include immediately trusting people met online and craving approval from strangers. And Deadhouse Dark does a bit of an after-school special vibe in the installments No Pain, No Gain, and The Staircase. Uh, but in the strongest entries, Deadhouse Dark doesn't focus on technology itself as the danger it mines features from the friction between our trust in technology and the natural world's refusal to submit to its authority. Deadhouse Dark starts off strong with Dashcam from director Ro Rosie Lord, in which two sisters returning home from a Halloween party come across an abandoned car on a forest road. Though the Dashcam footage uh, through the dashcam footage, we see the older sister get out and inspect the scene while the younger sister takes pictures of the wreck from inside. The duality of the dashcam and the cell phone creates an unnerving sense of simultaneousness. Dashcam carries the doubling uh, through its surreal conclusion, which rearranges all those elements, the dark forest, a girl lurching along in a blood-covered dress, howls and screams reverberating through the woods into an effectively creepy tableau. Uh, the later installment, called A Tangled Web We Weave, is similarly winning because of the genre conventions it upends. While Nicholas's hopes David prepares for an in-person date with a woman he met through a dating app, he hears a scratching noise in his home. Does he have a rodent problem? As he obsesses over the tiny trespasser, writer-director Enzo Tadishi shares clues about David's obsessive sense of order. Stacks of soup cans in the pantry, lines of rat traps along the kitchen floor. When Ellen arrives for their date, she also senses something is off. And then the story ships, shifts into a subversive direction. A Tangled Web We Weave is a nod towards the revenge-focused films that have uh, prioritized female characters in horror since the 1970s. Its ending, like that of Dashcam, smartly uses technology as a tool for documentation 
rather than as something inherently perilous. The mistake made by installments, no pain, no gain, and the staircase, which are disappointingly banal, and Joshua Long's grotesque conclusion section of My Empire of Dirt, which focuses on a character refusing to die while surrounded by a hoarder's paradise of decay, has nothing to do with technology at all. Annie uh, Finsterer's hoarsely wet cackle as the corpse-like grace, her lungs filled with fluid and her body covered in sores, will haunt viewers, but what does My Empire of Dirt have to do with the rest of Dead House Dark? The inconsistency in terms of narrative, narrative theme and overlap is the most frustrating thing about Dead House Dark, which explicitly links a tangled web we weave and the mirror box, but fails to weave together the other four installments. Now, you know, isn't that what an, an anthology is? A story upon itself? So maybe they're criticizing the lack of consistency, where some stories do interact with the others. But all in all, an anthology is just separate stories. The lack of connective tissue is, is a detriment, and it results in Dead House Dark lacking the cohesiveness of other horror anthologies, how should these stories be considered and compared or taken in as a whole? Dead House Dark avoids those questions and those technical experimentation of dashcam or the nostalgic feel of a tangled web, uh, sorry, a tangled web we weave, don't make up for the lack of a greater congruence. There are intermittent terrors here, particularly the grimy exploration of mortality's limits in the one called My Empire of Dirt, but otherwise, Dead House Dark fails to hang together. So I don't really think it's really saying it's neither good or bad. It's just criticizing how all the stories don't tie into one another consistently. That's my take on that. So, want to welcome Tyler. Welcome, Tyler. Thank you for joining us. Emmy has also joined us on Facebook. Welcome, guys. So, uh, just looking at the time here. We're already 30 minutes into this. Um, now, we've talk, talked about this film, Demonic. That sounds really good. And it's coming out August 20th by uh, Neil Blomkamp. A uh, young woman unleashes terrifying demons when supernatural forces at the root of a decades-old rift between mother and daughter are revealed. The main character is a girl who's been estranged from her mother. The District 9 and Elsium filmmaker tells Entertainment Weekly. During the course of the film, she gets sort of reunited with her mother and we learn about some crazy backstory that she wasn't aware of i would say it has a crossover between between science fiction and horror blumkamp uh, shot the film after the start of the pandemic the whole planet was shutting down and the plans that i had for other big films were put on hold says the british columbia based director 
Living out here in this slightly more rural area, I was thinking we should self-finance something so that we can make something really cool. And I love that. I love that. It's very creative. For a long time, I've been really interested in films like Paranormal Activity and lower budget stuff that is pretty terrifying. And so we just started working on this concept and it grew, it got bigger than films like Paranormal Activity, but it was cut from the same cloth, really. So that's what it is. We made use out of a lot of the locations out here and just shot it through the summer. The cast of Demonic includes Carly Pope, Chris William Martin, and Michael Rogers. The cast was a group of people who I really like. Everything coming from this feeling of wanting to get people together and shoot something that we were in control of, says Blumkamp. It made me look through the catalog of actors that I had worked with um, on our experimental Oat Studio YouTube stuff. I worked with Carly on a few Oats pieces, so I immediately thought she would be great for the female lead. It was pretty cool, close-knit group of friends working on something together. Blumkamp is not the only director who made a horror film during the lockdown. Last year saw the release of Rob Savage's Zoom Set Chiller Host, while Kill List uh, author Ben Wheatley put out his own shot during the pandemic, Terror Tale, in April. With Ben Wheatley, it's pretty fascinating because a mutual friend of ours, Sherido Copley, the star of District 9, who starred in one of Ben's films, says Blumkamp, I was saying to Shari that I was shooting this similar horror film out here, and he was like, Ben's doing the exact same thing in England. I emailed Ben and I was like, are you also shooting a COVID horror film right now? And he was like, yes, yes, I am. So I was pretty, that was pretty awesome. It's a genre where you can really be creative and fairly experimental at a very low budget level. I think it was a perfect time when people were on pause to play around, play around a bit in the genre. IFC Midnight will release Demonic in theaters August 20th. Not bad for something that he decided to do during the lockdown. And it's also coming on video on demand, digital, just a week later, August 27th. And we're seeing a lot more of that. Um, movies are starting to be now exclusively, exclusively released to theaters, but very, very soon after. In this case, a week after, they're coming on video on demand, Blu-ray, uh, whatnot, and some may take up to 30 days, but otherwise, it's not the whole, you gotta wait four or five months after a film leaves the theaters to get to watch it at home. So, that sounds pretty interesting, and we've read a lot of stuff about this movie, Demonic. I'm definitely gonna be watching that as well. Colette writes, she loves paranormal films, as do I. Want to welcome uh, DDY Peralta, who's given us a big wave on Instagram. Welcome, DD. So, let's see, going through the list. Uh, yeah, the best and worst of 90s teen horror craze. So, let's see if they have a list for us. I think the 90s were... 
uh, how do I put this? Not the best decade for horror. We got some great horror movies in the 90s. Make no mistake about it. Scream came out in the 90s. There were a lot of movies, a lot of great horror movies that came out in the 90s. They just did not get the attention they deserved. Want to welcome Kathy, who's just joined us on Facebook. Welcome, Kathy. So, dark trailer for small town horror thriller, Women, There Are Monsters Everywhere. Gravitas Ventures has released a trailer for a dark and disturbing horror thriller, thriller titled Women. The story follows a small town detective who is investigating the disappearance of a local woman and in the process, he comes across an unassuming sociology professor who is living a double life. It turns out that this professor is a sick and twisted person who kidnapping who is kidnapping and torturing women. Women stars Adam Dorsey, Anne-Marie Dobbins, Anna Maish, Kylie Del Rey, Denise Gossett, and Michael Simon Hall. The movie was directed by Icelandic filmmaker Anton Sigurdsson. Uh, he's done Graves and Bones, Cruelty, and uh, Fulir Vasarwil. And it will be released in select U.S. theaters and video on demand simultaneously May 28th. So, I always watch, love watching a good trailer. Let's check this out together. The assignment is... How has society evolved in terms of beauty standards? I didn't know you weren't here. Yes. I could give you a ride. Well, I better get going. Yes? So you're telling me we got nothing? The victim was an adult female. There is evidence of both vaginal and anal intercourse. I'm bringing in a new girl. Even after what happened last time? What do you think? It's not for you. Then for who? You know who. Just stay here. He's watching us. You move your pants. I gotta get out of here. Don't even think about escaping. What? No! No, 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 no! That does look interesting, you know, good old psychopath, uh, kidnapper, crime, horror movie right there. Check it out. It's called Women. It's coming out at, uh, in a month to both video on demand and select theaters. Now, I <laughs> check out this headline. The horror movie that Emilio Estevez regrets ever filming. As you know, I just read the headline. I'm going to say it again. And when I read this headline... I was just trying to rack my brains to remember a horror movie that starred Emilio Estevez, and I came up with nothing. So let's see what they're talking about. 
Emilio Estevez has had his shares of ups and downs in the film and TV industry. That is bound to happen when you start an acting career at the age of 11. In the 1980s, Estevez stars Sean Sean Brightly against the backdrop of Hollywood. He starred alongside the late Patrick Swayze in The Outsiders. And he had a lead role of Otto in the nihilistic comedy Repo Man. He reached his official heartthrob status as a high school jock, Andrew Clark, in John Hughes' The Breakfast Club, quickly reuniting with co-star Judd Nelson on another 80s coming-of-age staple, St. Elmo's Fire. But by the time he starred in 1992's The Mighty Ducks, as a compulsory hockey coach, Gordon Bombay Estevez had carved out a spot in entertainment separate from his famous father, Martin Sheen, and his brother is, of course, Charlie Sheen. With his fame on the rise, Estevez was due for a good horror film. A script landed on Estevez's doorstep that was projected to be a defining horror hit of the decade. There was no way it could fail. The source material was written by horror master Stephen King, who was also attached to direct. Unfortunately, the hype did not live to expectations, and the film flopped. Years after its release, Emilio Estevez finally revealed how he felt about the film. And the film is Maximum Overdrive. There you go. By 1986, Stephen King was on top of the world. The horror novelist books were turned into films almost as quickly as he finished writing them. He could already name over a dozen of his stories that had hit the big screen, including Carrie, Cat's Eye, Firestarter, starring a very young Drew Barrymore, and Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. When Hollywood approached King to direct his own feature film, who was he to resist? King penned up the script to maximum overdrive, and the author came on as the cast and crew's leader. The script was based on King's own 1978 short story called Trucks. It told the story of a group of strangers stranded at a diner fighting off self-aware machines that have turned on humanity. Sounds a little too much like the Terminator. Unfortunately, the author's talents didn't translate to the camera. The film received scathing reviews, and King was nominated as Worst Director for that year's Razzie Awards. Uh, hindsight is 2020, and in an interview for 2002's Hollywood, uh, Stephen King, the author, admitted he had no idea of what he was doing as a director. He confessed he was coked out of his mind all through its production, but considers it a good learning experience. Stephen King's realization about his mistakes in Maximum Overdrive may have been a relief for Emilio Estevez, who seemed to hold similar sentiments. When Vanity Fair asked about his biggest acting regret, Estevez named Maximum Overdrive right away. He shared that over the years, King has repeatedly asked him for forgiveness for the failed movie. He also said his own mother, his own mom, 
tease them about the gig. Now, you know that's bad. When your own mother teases you about your work. I think at one point my mom said, why would you do that movie? I said, I wanted to work with Stephen King. And she said, couldn't you have helped him paint his house? <laughs> that's awesome. Couldn't you have helped him paint his house? Emilio Estevez and Stephen King have yet to reunite on another project since the 1986 bomb. Although the film fail, failed to live up to anyone's expectation, we can at least acknowledge that the music holds up. The soundtrack's album to Maximum Overdrive was produced by legendary rock group ACDC. The album entitled Who, Who Made Who features such legendary hits as Hell's Bells, For Those About to Rock, and You Shook Me All Night Long. Who would have guessed that the best thing about a Stephen King directed movie starring Emilio Estevez would be the soundtrack? That sounds about right. I'm trying to think. Uh, when it comes to directing, I don't think beyond that Stephen King has done much directing. Uh, if you guys know of any other, please let me know. But I cannot off the top of my head think of any other movies that Stephen King actually directed. Uh, Khaleesi is laughing out loud, as is uh, XX Allah, who's also laughing on Instagram. So, uh, Netflix drops a new trailer for a Thai horror film called Ghost Lab, and it looks like the next paranormal activity. That's two separate articles now that we have read referencing you know the next paranormal activity uh welcome rue who's from uh philippines welcome to the show so uh if you love supernatural thrill thrillers like paranormal activity and the blair witch project you've come to the right place netflix just dropped the official trailer for the upcoming thigh movie ghost lab the horror film follows two doctors, Gla uh, and We, who are determined to prove that ghosts really do exist. In the process, they spook themselves beyond belief. Let's check out this trailer. ทำไมไม่มีคลิปถ่ายติดผีแต่จากผมมาบ้างวะถ้าเราตั้งสมมุติฐานว่าผีคือปรากฏการณ์ธรรมชาติอ่ะเราต้องหากลไกที่ควบ
อีกนิดเดียวผมกำลังจะทำให้ผีปรากฏตัวได้โอ้ยประตูความลับจักรวาลแม่งเปิดขึ้นต่อหน้าพวกเราแล้วเว้ยความอยากรู้ของกูมันอยู่ไม่ได้แล้ววะกูไม่รู้แน่ใจใช่ไหมว่าโลกหลังความตายมีจริงกูจะเป็นคนฆ่าเบกโอ้ยสวยเลยมันดูเหมือนเป็นภาพยนตร์ที่มีความเป็นภาพยนตร์ที่มีความเป็นภาพยนตร์ที่มีความเป็นภาพยนตร์ที่มีความเป็นภาพยนตร์ที่มีความเป็นภาพยนตร์ที่มีความเป็นภาพยนตร์ที่มีความเป็นภาพยนตร์ที่มีความเป็นภาพยนตร์ที่มีความเป็นภาพยนตร์ที่มีความ Uh, in the trailer, we're introduced to the horrifying storyline, which focuses on Gla and We as they prepare to confront the afterlife. During their experiment, they're shocked to see a spirit with their own eyes, which only fuels them to continue digging for answers that were never meant to be uncovered. And that always gets me. People who are paranormal investigators, and this doesn't. Apply to the seasoned veteran paranormal investigators. They have my full respect for what they do. Uh, but people who just want to experience something, and if they do it long enough, they might experience something that can't be explained. And when they started doing it, that's all they really wanted to do is to see if it was real. And what that does, though, it really motivates them to go to the next level. To try to get an answer that, my opinion, no matter how hard you look, you are not going to find that answer. We are not meant to know, uh, but it doesn't stop them. It doesn't stop them. And Colette writes, "It's a bit like Flatliners," and I gotta admit, Colette, you and I have the same line of thinking. As I was watching that, I was definitely reminded of Flatliners with Julia Roberts and a whole bunch of. Uh, A whole great cast behind that movie, but yeah, I like how you and Colette have the, uh, how you, uh, Colette and me have the same line of thinking when it comes to these things. So anyway, in the time that we have left, which is not a lot, I want to just quickly go over uh, some of what we think is the best horror movie sequels that have come out over the decades. Uh, I know people are going to really push back against this first one, uh, the sequel to Alien. That's 1986 Aliens. For some reason, people did not like Aliens. Uh, I loved Aliens. I really loved it. It was directed by James Cameron. It's completely different than the first movie, of course, to bring back Sigourney Weaver, who's awesome. The fact that the story itself. That they colonized the planet that was first discovered by Sigourney Weaver and her uh, her uh, her crew, uh, knowing what was out there, and then what they called the company uh, did it because they wanted to weaponize the aliens. I think it had a great story. The action was phenomenal. The ending was amazing. I just don't know why some people just flat out did not like it. Uh, next on the list, when it comes to the Friday the Thirteenth movies, you got to be very careful uh, because that is definitely a franchise with its sequels that have definitely crossed the line. Friday the Thirteenth Part Two was good. Part Three was good. 
part four, which was titled The Final Chapter. As we all know now, it was far from the final chapter. But every almost every other movie after that was really silly, except, in my opinion, for Friday the 13th, part six, Jason Lives. I personally enjoyed that one very much. Also, Nightmare on Elm Street, all right? Uh, part three, Dream Warriors, 1987. That one was directed by Chuck Russell. Uh, it was a course correction for the franchise after what damage uh, was done by Freddy's Revenge. So let's see, Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn. This is a movie in which I have learned to appreciate a lot more as the years have gone on. When I, you've heard me tell this story before, I saw this movie. I saw this movie in the theaters when it came out in 1987, fully expecting uh, a continuation of the original, which was scary as hell. They decided to go a whole different route with Evil Dead 2, and like I said, I've learned to uh, appreciate it as time went on for what it was meant to be. I was very disappointed when I watched it as a very young teenager. But anyway, Scream 2, another good sequel directed by Wes Craven, who also did the original Scream. Um, Tyler writes, Jason Lives was on my top three. That was a good one. Uh, The Devil's Rejects, amazing. Uh, Sequel to House of a Thousand Corpses by Rob Zombie. To me, out of the the tr- the three movies that are tied together, uh, House of a Thousand Corpses, The Devil's Rejects, I like The Devil's Rejects the best. Uh, I just absolutely love that movie. 2005, like we mentioned, of Rob Zombie it was his second film. Lionsgate is the one that uh, d- delivered it to us. A direct sequel. Uh, to his first in a more realistic tone, exercising characters like Uncle Hugo and Dr. Satan in favor of horror-bound road trip. Um, now, Saw Two, uh, directed by Darren Lynn Bozeman, another good sequel to the original Saw movie, and that's another franchise. Depending on the sequels, they were either hit or miss. Uh, we had, uh, Greg Bright on as a guest this past Monday, who, uh, who starred in Saw 5. Saw 5, I really enjoyed, but there are also a lot of movies in the Saw franchise that were not as good, and they're bringing the franchise back to life this year with a new movie that is, takes place in the Saw universe called Spiral. Starring Chris Rock. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing that. Absolutely. Uh, Conjuring 2. You guys all know I'm a huge Conjuring fan. Directed by James Wan. Continuing the real life investigations of Ed and Lorraine Warren. In a tense and hard hitting account of the Enfield poltergeist over in the UK. One of many horror movies claiming to be based on real events actually being based on a real case of supernatural activity that was investigated by the Warrens. Uh, Some of the uh, 
demons, you know, some of the, well, we know that the actual demon in The Conjuring 2 is Balak, but we do get introduced to other supernatural entities like the uh, Crooked Man, and most famously is Valak the Nun, who went on to have her, uh, the demon went on to have his own movie called The Nun, and they are coming out with a sequel to The Nun. So the Conjuring universe is expanding ever so heavily. Uh, Insidious, Tyler Wright's Chapter 2, was also really good. Just as good as the original, in my opinion. And then, of course, we have Halloween 2018. Halloween 2018 was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I also enjoyed the original sequel to Halloween. The original Halloween 2. Even though Halloween 2018 wants you to forget that Halloween 2 ever took place and have that take its place, which is fine. Uh, you can see it from both angles. But Halloween 2018 is an amazing movie. Halloween Kills is coming out this October. And then Halloween Ends, is it really ending? I highly doubt that, is coming out next year. And a great, sequel is Dr. Sleep. This is the sequel to The Shining. 2019, uh, Dr. Sleep is, really explains what The Shining was all about. Uh, Stanley Kubrick, who directed the original Shining, and Stephen King did not see eye to eye on how the film was made. The film is a classic either way, but it wasn't what Stephen King wrote. Uh, Kubrick took it in a slightly different direction. Dr. Sleep goes back and it really explains to everybody what The Shining is all about. So anyway, guys, that's all the time that we have for right now. This hour has just flown by. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope everybody has a great weekend. Please visit us at deadtalklive.com. If you want to be a part of our live audience, we stream Monday through Friday. Uh, 9.30 uh, p.m., sometimes 10 p.m. on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter. Come watch us. Be a part of our live audience. We would love to have you and interact with you Tuesday. Don't forget, special guest is Xander Berkeley. Uh, Monday, we're going to be reviewing Fear the Walking Dead with our executive producer, Marco. So until then, guys, everyone have a safe weekend and stay safe and always stay walking. Till Monday.